Join me as we pray together. Father, I just thank you for again for um, just gifting people with words and music and voices to sing to lead us to the throne of grace. So we, if we, your people, can sing. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, now to continue to pray to the Father for us. Heaven is reaching out to us because you are ever living to make intercession for us. That you might save us to the uttermost, having begun our salvation through an invasion of your grace in our eyes, our lives that opened our eyes to see our need for you and to receive you. We thank you that you are continuing to cry out to the Father for us. That you are a priest forever. And uh, your priesthood is based on an indestructible life and unceasing intercession for us. And so our hope and our faith is in you. We ask now and reach out to you very specifically for the grace that is needed for me to preach and for your people to hear. So remember your people, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us read detective novels, you know I do, and uh, especially when I get to the end, near the end of a novel, and I see the author skillfully moving me towards the climax, dropping a few hints here and there without revealing who the person is, I can hardly put the book down at that moment. Now, of course, the author knows the ending, but I don't. At any given time, he or she always knows more than I do. But can you imagine for a moment a different kind of detective novel writer who actually starts writing but doesn't know where he or she is going? They only get to write one or two chapters at a time. Can you imagine how they would go to bed at night? (laughs) Wondering, what did I write today? What was the meaning of what I wrote? What are these extra clues? Where is it heading? I don't think they would sleep very much until they got the next few chapters written. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't work that way. Everybody, every author knows the ending. But you know, with the prophets in the Old Testament, that's exactly the way it was. In in, in 1 Peter, we read these words. Concerning this salvation that we've been thinking about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, this grace we sang about now, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, those Old Testament prophets that were being moved by the Spirit of God to write about Jesus who was coming, especially his suffering, that's exactly what they were like. They would write stuff, they would know they were writing something important, they wouldn't quite know where it was heading, and they would furiously search within themselves. Perhaps nobody greater than Isaiah. Because he more than ever grappled with revelation that was pointing to the coming of Christ. And as we are heading towards the clearest revelation of Christ in the Old Testament in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. I want to take a few moments because we've been four months since the last time we looked at the book before my summer break. To just give us a big picture once again. And we all know what the one sentence summary of Isaiah is, right? If we will not stand firm in faith, we will not stand firm at all. The book itself is divided into three large sections. The first 39 chapters dealt with Judah as they were heading into exile for decades of rebellion against God's prophets. The specific danger that was looming over them was political. Assyria was the nation that was threatening to take over all the small little countries around them. And their temptation was rather than to trust God... They were trusting in human alliances, uh, political alliances, military alliances. And so it was a call to faith in the face of external threats. Chapters 40 to 55 
address primarily the situation of Judah in exile. Babylon has overtaken Assyria, has captured Judah. And in exile, as we know, they are facing two questions. Is God powerful enough to deliver us once again from from the uh, grip of the Babylonians? And secondly, even more important, can he deal with the sin in our lives that caused us this mess? So this is a call to faith, not in God's present power to deliver, which was the first 39 chapters, but in God's future power to deliver, and specifically in the face of our own sinfulness that led to the mess in our lives. And then chapters 56 to 66, which we will get to, Later on, they're all one prolonged, um, magnificent portrayal of revival, really. But that addressed the question when Judah came back from exile. But now they were saying, we're still under captivity. Okay, you got us out of Babylon and now Persia is in charge. When is this going to end? This time it was a call to wait when God takes too long. And when you put it that way, you can see the relevance of the book to our lives. Maybe not so much external threats, at least not political threats. But there can be external threats from work, from neighbors, all kinds of situations. And then, of course, our own sinfulness that we are only aware of too much, all too well. And then how many of us have had to wait because God isn't acting soon. So that's where we have been. We are now have been recently in the middle section of the book of Isaiah. We got as far as chapter 50. And in this middle section, dealing with this question of can God take care of our own sinfulness to keep us from messing up our lives again and again, Isaiah's answer is yes through this unique individual that he called the servant of the Lord. We saw hints to that, first of all, in chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then the second song of the servant in Isaiah 49. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of my Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then the third picture of the servant was the last time we studied Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is the first time the servant of the Lord is also seen to be a deeply suffering servant of the Lord. So the answer to God's people's sins involved the suffering servant of the Lord. Now chapter 51 and 52 where we are starting today is a bridge to the climactic clearest revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament. Our beloved well known 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And so we were reading for more clues. Now you might say, but well, Sundar, there's one problem with your analogy, when that is, we already know the end. <laughs> we're in the New Testament. We know this is all about Jesus. So we all know the end. How can this be exciting for us? <laughs> well, listen, I reread the detective novels I, I like. <laughs> and you say, how can you do that when you know the ending? Here's the deal. When I read it the second time, I get to see the clues a lot better, which I missed the first time, right? 
And of course I read because of the cleverness of the plot, the character developments, and how skillfully these clues are buried in there, which I didn't know the first time. So by knowing the ending, you actually get more out of it the second time. And you and I, because we know the ending, because we know this is Jesus, doesn't take away one little bit from reading Isaiah one more time. Because you'll see, and you know what? This is far more important than just getting the the criminal right in the detective novel. This is life and death issues. And it is so crucial for us to know that what we believe is true. This is a fight for faith. No, I have been no more aware of that than this week. Even this morning getting ready. It is a constant fight for faith. And my job is to fight with you and fight for you and to help you fight that fight of faith this morning. And so I want you to come as we pick up our study of Isaiah once again. Seven of the next nine weekends we're going to be immersed in Isaiah until we get to Advent. And I want you to enter in with a little bit of the wonder that Isaiah must have had every night as he wrestled with, what did I write today? Who's this person I'm writing about? That's what Peter tells us. The prophets wrestled with. And let me remind you again of the genre of the book. This is not a linearly, logically developing from beginning till end teaching book. This is poetry. Most of Isaiah is poetry. Poetry revisits the same things over and over again with different images in different sequences. And remember, the goal is not information but immersion, not explanation but experience. There will be information, there will be explanation, but the goal beyond all of that is immersion and experience. So it doesn't matter if you've heard it all before. You need it again and again and again. So he begins in chapter 51, 1 to 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of the song. The invitation is to listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and you who you seek the Lord. Immediately, immediately we know there's an implication that not every one of his audience is seeking the Lord or listening. There's a subset. There's a subset within Judah, even in exile, who are the ones who probably have the writings of Isaiah that were preserved, who were reading it and studying it. You see, by and large, because the king of Babylon had a relatively benevolent policy towards those whom he conquered, life in Babylon wasn't all that bad. In fact, remember Jeremiah had told them in chapter 29, settle down, build houses, get married, have children, pray for Babylon. Not too bad. So there was only a subset. So right at the outset, I want to both recognize and exhort you. It's possible that sitting in this large group, there are some people who are not really seeking God. Who are not really wrestling with questions like, is God powerful enough to deal with my sin? Because life is relatively comfortable. Now I want to reorient your mind at the very beginning. And Alan didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know what he was going to say. And he reoriented your mind right at the very beginning. Reorient your mind to say, no, 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 I am here to pursue righteousness. And I am here to seek after God. No better place like this in a context with other brothers and sisters in Christian community. 
in a context where we are singing glorious songs for the greatness of God, where we are hearing about justice and righteousness and the need for that in our country, where we are giving and then hearing the word of God preached. Listen, if you, if you had this mindset, you wouldn't show up on one Sunday and not on another. Statistically speaking, taking our congregation as a whole, and that doesn't necessarily mean any one particular one of you, in our congregation, by and large, only 25% of the people come every week. About 50% of the people come once in two weeks or once in three weeks, and about 25% of the people who call Raxdale home probably come once in three or four weeks. Those are the statistics from our children's ministries. If you are here to seek God and to pursue righteousness, you will make this a priority. So I want to encourage you once again. Make that, settle that in your mind. Same thing with your small groups and any setting that you're in regularly to seek God and pursue righteousness, especially in community. This weekend at our leadership retreat, we've again been able to grip our hearts to see how crucial Christian community is to help one another. So I say that right at the very beginning. So come, come and listen. Be willing to dig deep. Superficiality is the curse of our culture and skimming is its uh, symptom. Don't settle for superficiality. Don't just be settled to skim the surface. Let's dig deep. Dig patiently. Recapture the wonder of Isaiah. So now Isaiah says to them in this text to Judah, Look to Abraham and Sarah, the quarry from which that rock that they were dug. Now why does he ask them to look back there? Well, see, first of all, Abraham and Sarah were their ancestors. The nation of Israel and Judah descended from them. But the specific, specific point he emphasizes is, he was but one when I called him and blessed him. He says, remember, Abraham was just a solitary person when I called him, and I have made a nation out of him. And the second thing he wants to point to them is, and when I did begin to make a nation out of them, Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100. Way beyond any ability to bear children. They were barren. They were not really unique. One, they were barren. I made many out of one and I brought life out of barrenness. That's the point. Looking to Abraham. So you see, the picture of Abraham and Sarah as a rock dug from a quarry is very apt. A hunk of rock has no life in it. Can't multiply, it cannot produce life. God said, I did both with him. And Abraham and Sarah in that condition, solitary and barren, are a powerful metaphor for Judah in exile. Judah in exile is first of all few. You see, first of all, 10 out of the 12 tribes had been decimated and captured by the northern kingdom 200 years ago. Now in the southern kingdom of Judah, as only as, as many were killed by Nebuchadnezzar and the rest were taken into exile. And in exile, there's only a small group that is seeking after him. <laughs> he said, but you're few, I can make you many. And the land, your land was left, your land was barren. The temple was destroyed, the land was ravaged, just a bunch of rubble and stones. Your king is gone. He said, I can take that barren land and I can make it into a garden. I can take the wilderness and make it into Eden. He's not only pointing to the fact that he's creator, but that he's a creator who brought harmony and beauty out of chaos. That's why he says, look, look to Abraham, look to Sarah. Your very existence as a nation is a demonstration of the fact that I am able to multiply one into many and take barrenness and bring life out of it. And that's what I'm going to do for you. Even though your land is barren, I'm going to beautify Zion again and I'm going to deal with your sin and get you back there. Sin does not have 
the last word. You and I today, according to Romans chapter 4, are descended from Abraham. Abraham is our father in the faith. Today the people of God are not restricted to one ethnic community. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as a building with Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets as the foundation, old and new, and you and I are built up upon it. Romans chapter 11 says, we are all olive branches. We are the unnatural olive branches, the Gentiles. Jewish believers are the natural branches, and there is one root system, Abraham. And so we are called, and, and our, we are ravaging our exile is not literal. We probably live in reasonably good houses, worship in a good church. But it's more that, but the question is that of sin. And when it comes to the ravages of sin, there's plenty of evidence. Our lives and our households experience that, don't we? Financial chaos, sometimes because of unwise financial decisions made in the past, because of greed, materialism, covetousness, what have you. Relational chaos, sometimes because of the choice of an unwise spouse many years ago or decades ago, against the advice of family and friends. Devastating personal habits. Relational chaos, not due to our own sin maybe, but the sin of others, especially family of origin people. For all of these reasons, for one or more of them, some of our lives can be described, or at least some region of our lives can be described as barren and desolate. We've lost spiritual vitality. We've lost hope. Certainly lost any sense of creativity or any hope that harmony and beauty can come back into our lives. And so Judah's second question in exile is our question. Can God deal with this sin-caused barrenness and exile? Whatever form it is taking in our lives. Isaiah's answer is yes he can. Because of Jesus. So you and I are to look to Abraham and Sarah. He said look to the quarry from which they were dug. Abraham as far as we know was an idol worshipper who wasn't seeking God when God appeared to him in Mesopotamia. And when he did get into the land with Sarah on a couple of occasions he lied to get out of trouble. <laughs> He wasn't even that great champion of faith either because when no child was coming for a while, he allowed his wife to persuade him to try and have a child through, to do an end run around God's plans and help God along a little bit and have a child of his own through his handmaiden. And that has caused disaster that we're still not recovered from. And as for Sarah, when God said to her, I'm coming in one year and you're going to have a child, she laughed in unbelief. It is out of such a people that God made a nation. <laughs> They're just like us. Imperfect in our faith, resorting to lies, laughing in unbelief. That's us. He says, look to them. You're just like them. But that's good news too. Because then I'm your God like I was Abraham and Sarah's God. Then we can look beyond Judah, that they couldn't, to the fact that God was faithful and did bring them back to we can look beyond Isaiah to the servant of the Lord, look beyond Isaiah 53 to the fact that he did come, just as they promised, just as Isaiah promised. We have even greater reason to look to them. And we can re-look at the promises of God to make the wilderness into a garden and the desert into Eden in the light of Jesus' promises. 
Isaiah 9 says, He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In other words, He's the source of wisdom, He's the source of power, He's driven by compassion, and He brings peace into our lives. It is that fourfold name of Jesus that we can look to today and have it settle in upon our wilderness and our desert and dare to believe that it can become a garden and harmony and beauty can come back into the midst of our lives. So there's the first picture that, God, that Isaiah paints of God on our way to the 53rd chapter. God is a life giver, so hope in the midst of his barrenness. Over the last year and a half in our small group, and I have the man's permission to share this, we've had the joy in our group of, of, of getting to know one individual who is a beautiful testimony to this. And here's a one-line summary of his life. I ran it by him yesterday to make sure it was accurate, and secondly, that he was happy for me to share that with you. And he gave me yes for both. Sin in his life had reduced, his, had completely broken his marriage and was destroyed and long gone. He was alienated from his children. And he was driven to succeed in life by one desire. I want to prove my father wrong. He was full of hatred. And then when that one venture that he put all of his hope on failed, he had nothing left. He was completely devastated. Through the loving care and prayer of a colleague at work, he came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Today he's a joyful servant of people. Completely free of bitterness and resentment. Rebuilding a relationship with his estranged children. Married to a godly woman whose life he is blessing by his hospitality and service. Jesus comes into wilderness of sin. And last night, because we had the time in a smaller group, I just opened it up for testimony. About eight or nine people gave testimonies of how Jesus came into their wilderness. And has changed it to God. So hope, please hope, he is God the life giver. Jesus, the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hope in Him. And then He continues in verses 4 to 7. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. In the first three verses, God's promise was to Zion, to Judah. In these verses, he goes beyond his people to the nations of the world. His righteousness and his salvation will not be just for his own people, but will be for the nations of the world. There's a hint of that already in the earlier servant songs. In chapter 42, verse 6, we read, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And then in the third servant song, or second servant song in 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Not only is God's salvation universal, in these verses he also says it is eternal. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will, be, will never be dismayed. Not only is my coming salvation and righteousness universal for the nations, it is also eternal. So look to the heavens and the earth, visible reality. It's temporal. It's gone. My salvation is forever. 
And therefore, in the light of the fact that God's salvation is both universal and eternal, he says again, listen, there's another reason for you. Listen to me, you who know righteousness and the people in whose heart is my law. It's interesting, eh? Verse 1 began by saying, listen to me, you who seek righteousness. Verse 7 says, listen to me, who you know righteousness. It's a beautiful promise right in that ship. It is worthwhile seeking God because those who seek Him will find Him. It is worthwhile seeking His righteousness because those who seek His righteousness will end up with His law, not in our heads, not in an external tablets of stone, but upon the tablets of the human heart. You see, if looking to Abraham and Sarah gave us hope in a God who is able to take one and make it many and take barrenness and wilderness and make it fertile, Looking to the heavens and the earth reminds us that life is temporal, but God's coming salvation is eternal and universal. And therefore, our response is to seek His righteousness and to seek His kingdom. Of course, this was made crystal clear to us when Jesus, the servant of the Lord, did show up. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. The first recorded teachings of Jesus are Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he begin by saying there? Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's picking up what Isaiah left off. (laughs) Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those who seek will find. Those who hunger after the Lord will have the law of God within their heart. Therefore, it's worthwhile seeking. And then in chapter 6, what does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, these temporal things that are going away one day, they'll be added to you. I'll take care of those for you. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Because there, there to seek righteousness doesn't just mean the internal righteousness of the law of God in our heart, but the coming of his kingdom on earth. This, that's what defend dignity is all about. You see, it builds upon the previous promise. When, when Jesus promises to bring harmony out of chaos, beauty into barrenness, many out of one, life out of death, the forgiveness of sin, it isn't just for private enjoyment. It then builds upon that. We build upon a freedom from sin to a hunger for righteousness, both internal righteousness and then that others might be blessed. When God blesses us with Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father and the prince of peace, it is so that we can then become channels to bless other people with the blessing of Jesus. Unto the nations of the world. What does that mean? And by the way, this is something the suffering servant of the Lord will never let us forget. (laughs) Because in Isaiah 49, God said to the servant of the Lord, It is too small a thing for you just to bring back the remnant of Israel. I will make you a light of revelation to the Gentiles. If that was his job description, he's not going to let you and me, his people, forget what our job description is as well. By the way, this is why Judah rejected the servant of the Lord when he came. Read the New Testament, read the Gospels, you will find they got furious when he said, I have come to bless the Gentiles. Except for a very small group of them. They didn't like that. And so how do we seek righteousness? How do we seek the kingdom? First and foremost, we pray. Because when they asked Jesus, please teach us how to pray, what did he say? Again in Matthew chapter 6. This is his first recorded teaching for us. It just picks up the themes of Isaiah. (laughs) 
He says, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. That's to seek the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in that term is not just holiness, which is crucial. It is God setting the world right through us. And so he said, pray first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pray, thy kingdom come. So the first way to seek is to pray for that kingdom. That's why we've got prayer sheets to go along with this defend dignity. Praying for the MP who's taking the lead in this. Praying other ways. So the prayer is crucial. It's foundational. And then secondly, we act. As we are acting, as we had knee bends this morning, to remind us of the fact that we're called to act. We act when we give our money for the Great Commission. We act when we um, have someone like Lisa into our home, bless her, strengthen her, so she can go back tomorrow, back into the place where she faces chaos and wilderness and desert like you and I don't see every day. So there's the second picture of God. He's world changing. He's hope giver, life giver first of all. So for hope in the midst of bitter wilderness, barrenness. Secondly, he's world changer. So keep seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Now in verses 7 and 8, he introduces a third logical sequence to this. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. And the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. This was also hinted at in chapter 15. He's beginning right now. There is a parallel between the servant of the Lord and the remnant of God's people who are seeking for righteousness. You see, the servant suffered for his work. Isaiah chapter 50 says, tells us very clearly that it was in proclaiming the good news that he suffered. He said, the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning and he said, I was not disobedient and I offered my back to the beaters. A seamless transition from receiving God's words and speaking them to suffering. And so Isaiah is making the point here that you the faithful remnant, when you start speaking up for me, When you take my words, Isaiah's words, and start communicating them, you're going to be opposed because the rest of the people who are not seeking after God, even in exile, uh, don't care for that. So they'll say, hey, stop confronting me with the Holy One of Israel, just like they did before exile. And so he's saying to Judah, to the remnant of Judah, don't be afraid. Keep proclaiming. Don't be dismayed. Keep proclaiming. And when Jesus came in fulfillment, when the suffering servant of the Lord did come, it's interesting to see what it was that Jesus suffered for. They did not get upset at his good works. <laughs> Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead. Oh, the Pharisees didn't like it because he did it on Sabbath to teach another point altogether. That was great. What got Jesus into trouble was his words. I'm not making them up. Listen to, listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 7. A few selections. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my good deeds? No. Because my word finds no place in you. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you know what that means. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Was he getting into trouble because of his good works? 
And if you have any doubt at all, he says it so bluntly, we can't escape it in John 10. He said, the Father and I are one. And once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we are stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. It can't get any clearer than that, can it? So it is today. So it is today. People like good works. Nobody gets upset when Christians heal the sick, cleanse the leper, give money to the poor, build water wells, and they all have to be done because otherwise there's no credibility for the gospel. As Wally Albrecht taught us many years ago, we need to build bridges of trust through acts of service that can bear the weight of the gospel. But eventually you have to put down the weight of the gospel. And when you do, they won't like it. You're going to pick up Christmas shoe boxes. Do you know that this year there's a groundswell of opposition to the Christmas? You might say, why would anybody object to children getting gifts? Aha, there's a little gospel booklet in there. And they don't want that anymore. Including some of the liberal end of the Christian denomination who are not going to be participating in the Christmas shoebox because of the gospel message. They like the good works. Take out the gospel message, we love your shoeboxes. Put in the gospel message, we don't want your shoeboxes. What is that saying to us? Where is the opposition to? The words. In my home country in India, Jesus is revered far more than in Christian Canada and North America. The last temptation of Christ was banned in India. But let somebody become a worshipper of Jesus in India and see what happens. As soon as they begin to say, I am the way, the truth and the life, then you're in trouble. So it will be for us. When we have built the bridges of love and trust through service that can bear the weight of the gospel, when the weight comes down, you might be in trouble. Sometimes it can come from within the church, just like it did for them. It was a subset of Judah that didn't like the proclamation of the gospel. More often it can come from without. And so he said, don't fear when that happens. Don't fear reproach. The word reproach means to be shamed, to be scorned, to be taunted. How many Christians in university are taunted on day one by professors who say to them, my mission is to destroy your faith by the end of this year. And then he says, don't be dismayed. The word dismayed here carries the idea of being shattered. Sometimes even when there isn't any physical persecution, the relentless pressure of unbelief in the society that is around us Tears apart our faith. Remember Nathan Gamble when he was here, he was talking about how after a whole day of being hammered by unbelief, he said, you can hardly trust God. And he had to go back to beauty in the form of Bach's music. So no wonder we are told. Why? Because the sovereign Lord will help us. Jesus' testimony will become ours. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do His will, which means to proclaim His word. And I know that I will not be put to shame. So there's Isaiah's beautiful picture for us. God is life giver, so hope in the midst of your barrenness. God is world changer, so keep seeking His kingdom and His righteousness in your heart and in the world. And thirdly, he's sovereign helper, so persevere in proclaiming the eternal words of Christ. Now, as I said to you, as I was reflecting on this passage for several weeks, because I've been away from Isaiah like you for quite a while, I needed to get a kind of a running start at it. And as I would pray through this text, before I studied, I just wanted to pray through this text. The dominating feeling that gripped my heart was, 
this must have been really difficult for Judah to believe. <laughs> well, I've been in exile for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. When is it going to happen? Can you really multiply us few into many again? Can you really overcome my own sin that caused all this mess? Can you really bring a garden out of wilderness? Beauty out of barrenness? And so it is for us today. Even among the subset, hopefully the large subset, that is seeking after righteousness and pursuing God. We look at the barrenness in our lives and around us. Sometimes as a pastor, you don't get the privilege of just being happy with your own life. Not should any one of us, by the way. One of the things in this retreat we were talking about as leadership is how important it is for us as a congregation to learn to understand that we're all our brother's keeper. Every one of us has responsibility for each other's welfare. But certainly as a pastor, my personal life may not have a lot of barrenness in it, but I carry the weight of barrenness all around. Not, not allowed to forget it. Just this past week, having a conversation with somebody who came to us, just talking about the devastation and barrenness in their relational life. And sometimes they say, God, can you, can you really? Or it's equally hard to believe that His righteousness and His justice is coming. Last night, it's the only time I read a newspaper for a little bit on Saturday night. Probably not a bad idea, not a good idea for me after last night what happened. I happened to read a section about witch camps in Nigeria. Where people are accused of being witches and then sentenced to this camp for the rest of their lives. And often to take care of them, a 12 or a 14 year old granddaughter is sent. And then she then lives in that camp for the rest of her life. I thought of my 14 year old granddaughter. And I said, how could I bear the thought of that happening? I said, God, where are you? Can your justice and righteousness really come to this world? It's hard to believe it. The world around us is painful. And it's hard to proclaim the gospel against a prevailing culture of unbelief and even hostility. So I'm standing here this morning. That's why I realized so clearly this was a fight. This is a fight for faith. Prayer makes no sense at all unless you understand that Christian life is war. Ephesians 6 is so crucial. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and high places. It's the nature. You're a follower of Christ. You're in a battle for the rest of your life. And it's at heart a battle for faith. That's why Jesus prayed for Peter. Fear not. I have prayed that your what? Faith does not fail. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for me that my faith will not fail. I have no hope in myself. And you should have no hope in yourself. You can have all hope in Jesus. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So throw the whole weight of your, of your desperate condition upon Him. Desperate in your own life. Desperate because of our powerlessness to change the world. And desperate because of our inability to overcome fear. But He's there for all of those things. So will you do what I did? Just pray. I just, day after day, I just prayed first. As I did this morning. And you know what? He is so gracious. Today I read Psalm 110. <laughs> The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord will extend your scepter from Zion. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. <laughs> your troops will come to you in the day of battle. Holy, numerous, willing, obedient, fresh. <laughs> you are a priest forever. And I said, thank you, Jesus. He is worthwhile pursuing because he is always faithful. Father God.
Jesus, author and perfecter of my faith. I cannot do this for myself, let alone for anybody else in this room. So will you cause faith to develop? Even as we do our deep knee bends in your presence every Sunday, every time in our personal altars. Rejuvenate our spirits. Remove the toxins from those joints. Let energy surge within our bodies once again. Let faith well up. Faith to believe that you can still transform a wilderness into a garden. Faith to believe that your righteousness is both universal and eternal. And therefore faith to seek it in our hearts and out in the world. And faith to call upon your help and strength to follow you in proclaiming your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have a single phrase I want to bless you with. You know, Lisa, this is the last Sunday here. When do you leave tomorrow? Uh, Lisa leaves on Tuesday. Again, Isaiah always sends you away with a beautiful blessing, isn't it? And for Lisa and for all of us, I want to bless you with a warrior spirit. I want you to fight. Fight for your life of faith. Fight for your children. Fight for your marriages. Fight for holiness in this church. Fight for the salvation of the lost. Fight for the blessing of the poor in this world. Go in Jesus' name.